Welcome to today's Triple Z. The Triple Z podcast is a daily recording that you can use to help you fall asleep each night. Just turn down the volume, lay back, relax, and enjoy as you fall asleep. This episode we are reading the first few chapters of The Vulture Maiden. Written by Wilhelmine von Hillern and translated from German in 1876. Wilhelmine von Hillern lived from March 11, 1836 until the 15th of December, 1916 and was a German actress and novelist. Her principal novels and short stories were produced during the 1860s and 1870s. She was quite well known in America by reason of the fact that her works were frequently read as a text by students of elementary German. If you enjoy our program, please be sure to write us a review on your podcast platform and share us with a friend. You both might sleep just a little better at night. Our website is triple Z, that's three Z's.media. You can also like and share our content on Facebook or our Instagram account ZZZ Media Podcast. Music for today's episode was provided by the Sleep Channel on Spotify. The Vulture Maiden A Tale of the Tyrolese Alps Far down in the depths of the Oats Valley, a traveler was passing. On the eagle heights of the giddy precipice above him stood a maiden's form, no bigger than an alpine rose when seen from below, yet sharply defined against the clear blue sky the gleaming ice peaks of the ferner. There she stood firm and tranquil, though the mountain gusts tore and snatched at her and looked without dizziness down into the depths where the ache rushed roaring through the ravine and the sunbeams slanting across its fine spray mist painted glimmering rainbows on the rocky wall. To her, also, the traveler and his guide appeared minutely small as they crossed the narrow bridge, which thrown high over the ache looked from above like a mere straw. She could not hear what the two were saying, for out of those depths no sound could reach her but the thundering roar of the waters. She could not see that the guide, a trimly attired chamois hunter, raised his arm threateningly and pointing her out to the stranger said, that is certainly the vulture maiden standing up yonder, no other maid would trust herself on that narrow point so near the edge of the precipice. See, one would think that the wind must blow her over, but she always does just the contrary to what other reasonable Christian folk do. Now they entered a pine forest, dark, damp, and cold. Once more the guide paused and sent a falcon glance upwards to where the girl stood and the little village spread itself out smilingly on the narrow mountain plateau in the full glow of the morning sun which as yet could hardly steal a sidelong ray into the close, grave-like twilight of the gorge. Thou needn't look so defiant, there's a way up as well as down, he muttered and disappeared with the stranger. As though in scorn of the threat, the girl sent up a halloo, so shrilly repeated from every side that a flying echo reached even the silent depth of the firwood with a ghostly ring like the challenging cry of the chamois hunter's enemy, the fairy of the Oats Valley. I, thou mayst scream, I'll soon give it back to thee, he threatened again, 
and throwing himself stiffly back and supporting his neck with both hands, he peeled forth, clear and shrill as a post horn, a cry of mocking and defiance up the mountainside. She hears that, maybe? Why do you call the girl up there the vulture maiden, asked the stranger down in the moist, dim, rustling forest. Because, sir, when she was only a child she looked a vulture's nest and fought the old bird, said the Tyrolese. She is the strongest and handsomest girl in all the Tyrol and terribly rich and the lads let her drive them off so that it's a shame to see. There's not one of them sharp enough to master her. She is as shy as a wild cat and so strong that the boys declare no one can conquer her. If one of them comes too near, she knocks him down. Well, if ever I went up there after her, I'd conquer her or I'd tear the chamois tuft and feather from my hat with my own hands. Why have you not already tried your luck with her? If she is so rich and so handsome, asked the traveler. Well, you see, I don't care for girls like that girls that are half boys. It's true, she can't help herself. The old man Strominger is his name is a regular wicked old fellow. In his time, he was the best wrestler and fighter in the mountains and it sticks to him still. He has often beaten the girl cruelly and brought her up like a boy. She has no mother and never had one, for she was such a big strong child that her mother could scarcely bring her into the world and died of it. That's how it is the girl has grown up so wild and masterful. This was what the Tyrolese down in the ravine related to the stranger and he had not deceived himself. The maiden who stood out yonder above the precipice was Walburga Strominger, daughter of the powerful chief peasant, also called the Vulture Maiden, and he had spoken truly, she deserved this name. Her courage and strength were boundless as though eagle's wings had borne her, her spirit rugged and inaccessible as the jagged peaks where the eagles build their nests and where the clouds of heaven are rent asunder. Wherever anything dangerous was to be done, there from her childhood upwards was Wally to be found, putting the lads to shame. As a child even she was wild and impetuous as her father's young bull, which she had known how to subdue. When she was scarcely fourteen years old, a peasant had descried on a rugged precipice a golden vulture's nest with one young one, but no one in the village dared venture to seize it. Then the head peasant, scoffing at the valiant youth of the place, declared he would make his Walburga do it. And sure enough Wally was ready for the deed, to the horror of the women and the vexation of the lads. It is a tempting of providence, said the men. But Strominger must have his jest, all the world must learn by experience that the race of Strominger down to the children's children might seek its match in vain. You shall see that a Strominger girl is worth ten of you lads, he said laughing to the peasants who streamed together to witness the incredible feat many grieved for the beautiful and stately young life that might perhaps fall a sacrifice to the father's boasting, still everyone wished to see. As the precipice to which the nest clung was almost perpendicular 
and no human foot could tread it, a rope was fastened round Wally's waist. For men, foremost amongst whom was her father, held it, but it was horrible to the lookers-on to see the courageous child, armed only with a knife, walk boldly to the edge of the plateau, and with a vigorous spring let herself down into the abyss. If the knot of the rope should give way, if the vulture should tear her in pieces, if in her descent she should dash out her brains against some unnoticed crag? It was a godforsaken act of Strominger's so to risk the life of his own child. Meanwhile, Wally sailed fearlessly through the air, till midway down the precipice she exultingly greeted the young vulture, who ruffled his downy feathers and piping, gnawed with his shapeless beak at his strange visitor. Hardly pausing to consider, she seized the bird which now raised a lamentable cry with her left hand and tucked it under her arm. There was a rushing sound in the air, and in the same instant a dark shadow came over her, a roaring filled her ears, and a storm of blows fell like hail upon her head. Her one thought was the eyes saved the eyes, and pressing her face closely against the rock, she hit blindly with the knife in her right hand at the raging bird that threw itself upon her with its sharp beak, its claws and wings. Meanwhile, the men above hastily drew in the rope. Still for a time during the ascent, the battle in the air continued, then suddenly the vulture gave way and plunged into the abyss Wally's knife must have wounded it. Wally, however, came up bleeding, her face torn by the rocks and holding in her arms the young bird that at no price would she have relinquished. But, Wally, cried the assembled people, why didn't thou let the young one go? Then the vulture would have loosed its hold. Oh, she said simply, the poor thing can't fly yet, and if I had let him go, he'd have fallen down the precipice and been killed. This was the first and only time in her whole life that her father gave her a kiss, not because he was touched by Wally's noble compassion for the helpless creature, but because she had performed an heroic action that would reflect honor on the illustrious race of Strominger. Such was the maiden who stood out now on the projecting rock, where the foot could hardly find room to rest, and dreamily looked down into the ravine over which she hung, for often, with all her impetuosity, a strange stillness would come over her, and she would gaze sadly before her, as though she saw something for which she longed, and which she yet might not attain. It was an image that always remained the same, whether she saw it in the grey morning twilight, or in the golden glow of noon, in the evening red, or in the pale moonlight, and for a year it had followed her wherever she went or stood, below in the valley, or above on the mountain. And when, as now, she was out and alone, and her large chamois eyes, at once wild and shy, wandered across to the white gleaming glaciers, or down into the shadow-filled gorge where the ache thundered on its way, still she sought him whom the image resembled, and when now and then a traveler, minutely small in the distance, glided past below, she thought that maybe he, and a strange joy came to her in the fancy that she had seen him, even though she could distinguish nothing but a human form no bigger than a moving image in a peep show. And now as those two wayfarers passed along, of whom the one inquired about her and the other threatened her, 
She thought again, it may be he. Her bosom seemed too tight for her beating heart. Her lips parted, and like a lark set free, her joy soared up in appealing song. And as the hunter in the wood below heard its dying echo, so an echo of his reply reached her, and she listened with an intoxicated ear it might be his voice. And a blushing reflection of her warm rush of feeling spread itself over the wild, defiant face. She could not hear that the song was a song of scorn and defiance. Had she known it, she would have clenched her sinewy fist, she would have tried the strength of her arm, and over her face dark shadows would have passed till it grew pale as the glaciers after sunset. But now she sat down on the stone that supported her, and swinging her feet as they hung over the abyss, she rested her graceful head on her hands and gave herself up to dreaming over again all the strange things that had happened that first time that she ever saw him. Chapter 1 Joseph, the Bear Hunter It was at Whitsuntide, just a year before, that her father had taken her to Solden for the confirmation that though the bishop came every other year, because there is a high road that leads to Solden. She felt a little ashamed, for she was already sixteen years old, and so tall. Her father would not let her be confirmed before, he thought that with it would come at once lovemakings and suitors and time enough for that. Now she was afraid that the others would laugh at her. But no one took any notice. The whole village when they arrived was in excitement, for it was said that Joseph Hagenbach of Solden had slain the bear that had shown itself up in Vinchgau, and for which the young men in all the country round had watched in vain. Then Joseph had set out across the mountains, and by Friday last he had already got him. The messenger from Schnalser had brought the news early, and Joseph himself was soon to follow. The peasants of Solden, who were waiting in front of the church, were full of pride that it should be a Sodner that had performed the dangerous deed, and talked of nothing but Joseph, who was indisputably the finest and strongest lad in all the mountains, and a shot without a rival. The girls listened admiringly to the tales of Joseph's heroic deeds, how no mountain was too steep for him, no road too long, no gulf too wide, and no danger too great, and when a pale, sickly-looking woman came towards them across the village green, they all rushed up to her and wished her joy of the son who had won such glory. He's a good one, thy Joseph, said the men cordially, he's one from whom all may take example. If only thy husband had lived to see this day, how rejoiced he would have been, said the women. No, no one would ever believe, cried one quaintly, that such a fine fellow was thy son not looking at thee. The woman smiled, well pleased. Yes, he's a fine grown lad, and a good son, there can't be a better. And yet, if you'll believe it, I never have an hour's peace for him, there's not a day that I don't expect to see him brought home with his limbs all broken. It's a cross to bear. The religious procession now appeared upon the place and put an end to the talk. The people thronged into the little church with the white-robed, gaily-wreathed children and the sacred office began. 
But the whole time Wally could think of nothing but Joseph, the bear slayer, and of all the wonderful things he must have done, and of how splendid it was to be so strong and so courageous, and to be held in such great respect by everyone, so that no one could get the better of him. If only he would come now, whilst she was in Solden, so that she also might see him, she was really quite burning to see him. At length, the confirmation was over, and the children received the final blessing. Suddenly, on the green outside in front of the church, there was a sound of wild shouting and hurrahs. He has him, he has the bear. Scarcely had the bishop spoken the last words of the blessing when everyone rushed out and joyfully surrounded a young chamois hunter who, accompanied by a troop of fine and handsome lads from the Schnalser Valley and from Vinchgau, was striding across the green. But handsome as his comrades might be, there was not one of them that came near him. He towered above them all and was so beautiful as beautiful as a picture. It seemed almost as though he shone with light from afar, he looked like the Saint George in the church. Across his shoulders, he carried the bear's fell, whose grim paws dangled over his broad chest. He walked as grandly as the emperor and never took but one step when the others took two, and yet he was always ahead of them and they made as much ado about him as though he had been the emperor indeed, dressed in a chamois hunter's clothes. One carried his gun, another his jacket, all was wild excitement, shouting and huzzaying he alone remained composed and tranquil. He went modestly up to the priest who came towards him from the church and took off his garlanded hat. The bishop, who was a stranger, made the sign of the cross over him and said, The Lord was mighty in thee, my son. With his help thou hast performed what none other could accomplish. Men must thank thee but thou, thank thou the Lord. All the women wept with emotion and even Wally had wet eyes. It was as though the spirit of devotion that had failed her in church first came to her now as she saw the stately hunter bow his proud head beneath the priest's benedictory hand. Then the bishop withdrew and now Joseph's first inquiry was, where is my mother? Is she not here? Yes, yes, she cried, here am I, and fell into her son's arms. Joseph clasped her tightly. See, little mother, he said, I should have been sorry for thy sake not to come back again. Thou dear little mother, thou'd never have known how to get on without me, and I too should have been loath to die without giving thee one more kiss. Ah, it was beautiful, the way he said it. Wally had quite a strange feeling, a feeling as though she could envy the mother who rested so contentedly in the loving embrace of the son and clung so tenderly to the powerful man. All eyes rested with delight on the pair, but an unutterable sensation filled Wally's heart. But tell us now, tell us how it all happened. Yes, yes, I'll tell you, he said laughing and flung the bearskin onto the ground so that all might see it. They made a circle round him and the village landlord had a cask of his best ale brought out and tapped on the green 
for one must drink after church, and above all, on such an extra occasion as this, and the little inn parlor could never have held such an unusual concourse of people. The men and women naturally pressed close round the speaker, and the newly confirmed children climbed onto benches and up into trees that they might see over their heads. Wally was foremost of all in a fir tree where she could look straight down upon Joseph, but the others wanted her place. There was some noise and struggling because she would not give way, and St. George looked up at them. His sparkling eyes fell upon Wally's face and remained smilingly fixed on it for a moment. All Wally's blood rushed to her head and she could hear her heart beating in her very ears with her intense fright. In all her life before she had never been so frightened and she had not an idea why. She heard only the half of what Joseph was relating, there was such a singing in her ears, all the while she was thinking, suppose he were to look up again? And she could not have told whether she wished it or dreaded it most. And yet, when in the course of his story it did once happen again, she turned away quickly and ashamed, as though she had been found out in something wrong. Was it wrong to have looked at him so? It might be, and yet she could not leave off, but she trembled so incessantly that she was afraid he might notice it. But he noticed nothing, what did he care for the child up there in the tree? He had looked up once or twice as he might have looked at a squirrel nothing further. She said so to herself, and a strange sorrow stole over her. Never before had she felt as she did today. She was only thankful that she had drunk no wine on the road. She might have thought that it had got into her head. In her confusion, she began playing with her rosary. It was a beautiful new one of red coral with a chased cross of pure silver that her father had given her for her confirmation. All of a sudden as she turned and twisted it, the string broke and, like drops of blood, the red beads rolled down from the tree. That is a bad sign, an inner voice whispered to her, old Lucard doesn't like it that anything should break when one is thinking of something. Of something. Of what then had she been thinking? She turned it over in her mind, but she could not discover. Precisely she had been thinking of nothing in particular. Why then should she be so troubled by the string breaking just at that moment? She felt as though the sun had suddenly paled and a cold wind were blowing over her, but not a leaf was stirring and the ice-bound horizon glittered in the radiant sunlight. The shadow of a cloud had passed within her or without her? How could she tell? Joseph meanwhile had finished relating his adventure and had shown round the purse containing the 40 florins paid by the Tyrolese government as the reward for shooting a bear and there was no end to the handshakings and congratulations. Only Wally's father held sullenly aloof. It angered him that anyone should accomplish a great and heroic deed. No one in the world had any right to be strong but himself and his daughter. During 30 years he had been esteemed, without dispute, the strongest man in the whole range of mountains and he could not bear now to find himself growing old 
and obliged to make way for a younger generation. When, however, someone said to Joseph that it was no wonder he should be such a strong fellow he had it from his father who had been the best shot and the best wrestler in the whole place then the old man could contain himself no longer but broke in with a thundering oh-ho. No need to bury a man before he's dead. Everyone fell back at the threatening voice. It's Strominger, they said, half frightened. I, it is Strominger, who's alive still, and who never knew till this moment that Hagenbach had been the best wrestler in the place. With his tongue, if you like, but with nothing else. Joseph turned round like a wounded wild cat, glaring at Strominger with flaming eyes. Who says that my father was a boaster? I say it, the head peasant of the Sonnenplatt, and I know what I'm saying, for I've laid him flat a dozen times, like a sack. It is false, cried Joseph, and no man shall blacken my father's name. Joseph, be quiet, the people whispered about him, it's the head peasant thou mustn't make a quarrel with him. Head peasant here, head peasant there. If God in heaven were to come down to blacken my father's name, I wouldn't put up with it. I know very well, my father and Strominger had many a wrestling bout together because he was the only one who could stand up with Strominger. And he threw Strominger just as often as Strominger threw him. It's not true, shouted Strominger, thy father was a weak fool compared to me. If any of you old fellows have a spark of honor, you'll say so to end now. If thou doesn't believe it after that, I'll knock it into thee. At the word fool Joseph had sprung like a madman, close up to Strominger. Take thy words back, or... Heavens above us, shrieked the women. Let be, Joseph, said his mother soothingly. He's an old man, thou mustn't lay hands on him. Oh, oh, cried Strominger, purple with rage, you'd make me out an old dotard, would you? Strominger is none so old and weak yet, but he can fight it out with a half-fledged stripling. Only come on, I'll soon show thee I've some marrow left in my bones. I'm not afraid of thee yet a while, not if thou'd shot ten bears. And like an enraged bull, the strong old man threw himself on the young hunter, who in spite of himself gave way under the sudden and heavy spring. But he only staggered for a moment, his slender form was so firmly knit, was so supple in yielding, so elastic in rising again like the lofty pines of his native soil that grow with roots of iron in the naked rock, buffeted by all the winds of heaven and bearing up against their mountain load of snow. As easily might Strominger have uprooted one of these trees as have flung Joseph to the ground. And in fact, after a short struggle, Joseph's arms closely clasped Strominger, tightening round and almost choking him, till a deep groan came with his shortening breath and he could not stir a hand. And now the young giant began to shake the old man, bending first on one side, then on the other, striving steadily slowly but surely to force first one foot and then the other from under him and so loosen his foothold by degrees. 
The bystanders hardly dared to breathe as they watched the strange scene almost as though they dared not look on at the felling of so old a tree. Now now Strominger has lost his footing now he must fall but no. Joseph held him up, bore him in his strong arms to the nearest bench and set him down on it. Then he quietly took out his handkerchief and dried the beads of sweat from Strominger's brow. See, Strominger, he said, I've got the better of thee, and I might have thrown thee, but God forbid that I should bring an old man to shame. And now we will be good friends again, we bear no malice, Strominger? He held out his hand, smiling good-humouredly, but Strominger struck it back with an angry scowl. The devil pay thee out, thou scoundrel, he cried. And you, all you soddeners who have amused yourselves with seeing Strominger made a laughingstock for the children you shall learn by experience who Strominger is. I'll have nothing more to do with you, and grant no more time for payments not if half Soldan were to starve for it. He went up to the tree, where Wally still sat as in a nightmare, and pulled her by the gown. Come down, he said, thou'll get no dinner there. Not a soddener shall ever see another kreutzer of mine. But Wally, who had rather fallen than got down from the tree, stood as if spellbound with her eyes fixed almost beseechingly on Joseph. She thought he must see how it pained her to go away. She felt as though he must take her hand in his and say, Only stay with me, thou belongs to me, and I to thee, and to no other. But he stood still in the midst of a knot of men who were whispering together in dismay, for many in the village owed money to Strominger, whose wealth circulated in the very veins of the whole neighborhood. Well, wilt thou go on, said Strominger, giving the girl a push, and she had to obey him whether for weal or woe, but her lips trembled, her breast heaved painfully, she flung a glance of powerless anger at her father, he drove her before him like a calf. So they went on for a few steps, then they heard someone following them, and turning round, there stood Joseph with a couple of peasants behind him. Strominger, he said, don't be so headstrong. You can never go, you and the girl, all that long way to the Sonnenplatz without eating anything. He stood close to Wally, she felt his breath as he spoke, his eyes rested on her, his hand lay compassionately on her shoulder, she knew not how it happened he was so good, so dear and she felt as she did when, taking the vulture's nest, the rushing sound of its wings suddenly filled her ears, and sight and hearing went from her. Even so, something overwhelming to her young heart lay in his presence, in his touch. She had not trembled when the mighty bird hovered above her, darkening the sun with his broad pinions. She had known how to defend herself calmly and bravely, but now she trembled from head to foot and stood bewildered and confused. Get off, cried Strominger, and clenched his fist at Joseph. I'll hit thee in the face if thou doesn't let me be I will, if it cost me my life. Well, if you won't, you won't, and so let it be, but you're a fool, Strominger, said Joseph calmly, and he turned round and went back with the others. Now no one tried to detain them, they walked on unmolested, 
farther at each step farther away from Joseph. Wally looked round, and still for a time she could see his head towering above the others, she could still hear the confused sound of voices and of laughter on the green before the church. She could not yet believe that she was really gone, that she should not see Joseph again perhaps never again. Now they turned a corner of the rock and all was hidden, the village green with all the people and Joseph and everything, everything was gone. Then suddenly there came upon her, as it were, a revelation of a great joy of which she had had one glimpse and which was lost to her forever now. She looked around as though imploring help in her soul's need, in this new, this unknown anguish. And there was none to answer her and to say, be patient, presently all will be well. Dead and motionless were the rocks and cliffs all around, dead and motionless the ferner looked down upon her. What did they care, they who had seen worlds come and worlds pass away? For this poor little trembling woman's heart. Her father walked on at her side, silent as though he were a moving rock. And he it was that was guilty of all. He was a wicked, hard, cruel man, there was not a creature in the world that took any interest in her. And while she thought all this, struggling with herself, she walked on mechanically farther and farther in advance of her father, uphill and downhill, as though she wished to walk off her heart's pain. The scorching sun glared on the blank well of rock, she strove for breath, her tongue clove to the roof of her mouth, all her veins throbbed, suddenly her strength gave way, she threw herself on the ground and broke into loud sobs. Oh ho! What's all this about? exclaimed Strominger in the greatest astonishment, for never since her earliest infancy had he seen his daughter weep. Art out of thy wits? Wally made no reply, she gave herself up to the wild outbreak of her soul's suffering. Speak, will thee? Open thy mouth, or... Then from her throbbing, raging heart, like a mountain torrent from the cleft rock, she poured forth the whole truth, overwhelming the old man with the rush and ferment of her passion. She told him everything, for truthful she had always been and unaccustomed to lying. She told him that Joseph had pleased her, that she felt such a love for him as no one in the world had ever felt before, that she had been rejoicing so in the thought of talking to him and that if Joseph had only heard how strong she was and how she had already done all sorts of strong things, he would certainly have danced with her and he would certainly have fallen in love with her too, and now her father had deprived her of it all, because he must needs fall upon Joseph like a madman, and now she was a laughing stock and a disgrace, so that Joseph to the last day of his life would never look at her again. But that was always the way with her father, he was always hard and mad with everyone, so that everywhere he was called the wicked Strominger and now she must atone for it all. Then suddenly Strominger spoke. I've had enough of this, he cried. There was a whistling through the air, and such a blow from her father's stick crashed down upon Wally that she thought her spine was broken, she turned pale and bowed her head. 
It was as hail falling on the scarce, open blossom of her soul. For a moment she was in such pain that she could not stir. Bitter tears forced themselves through her closed eyes, like sap from a broken stem, otherwise she lay still as death. Strominger waited by her muttering curses, as a drover stands by a heifer that, felled by a blow, can do no more. Around them all was still and lonely, no voice of bird, no rustling of trees broke the silence. On the narrow rocky path where father and daughter stood, no tree ever bore a leaf, no bird ever built its nest. A thousand years ago, the elements must have warred here in fearful conflict, and far as the eye could reach, nothing could be seen but the giant wrecks of the wild tumult. But now the fires were burnt out that had rent the ground, and the waters subsided that had swept away the strong ones of the earth in their raging flood. There they lay hurled one upon another, the motionless giants, the mighty powers that had moved them lay slumbering now, and peace as of the grave lay over all as over monuments of the dead, and pure and still as heavenward aspirations the white glaciers rose high above them. Only man, ever restless man, carried on even here his never-ending strife, and with his suffering destroyed the sublime peace of nature. At last Wally opened her eyes and gathered her strength to go on, no further lamentation passed her lips, she looked at her father strangely, as though she had never seen him before, her tears were dried up. Thou may guess now what will come of it. If thou thinks any more of yon scoundrel that made thy father a jest for children, said he, holding her by the arm, for thou may know this, that I'd sooner fling thee down from the Sonnenplatt than let Joseph have thee. It is well, said Wally, with an expression that startled even Strominger, such unflinching defiance lay in the simple words, in the tone in which they were spoken, in the glance of irreconcilable enmity which she threw at her father. Thus a wicked, wicked thing, muttered he between his teeth. I have not stolen anything, she answered in the same tone. Only wait a while I'll pay thee out, he snarled. Yes, yes, she answered, nodding her head, as if to say, only try it. Then they said no more to each other the whole way back. When they had reached home, and Wally had gone into her room to take off her holiday finery, old Luckard, who had lived with her mother and her grandmother, and who had brought Wally up from her cradle, put her head in at the door. Wally, hast been weeping? She whispered. Why? asked the girl with unwanted sharpness. There were tears on the cards I laid out the pack of cards for thy confirmation, thou fell between two knaves and I was frightened at it. It was all as near as if it had happened today and close by. Like enough, said the girl indifferently and laid away her mother's beautiful gown in the big wooden chest. Does anything ail thee, child? asked the old woman. Thou look so ill and thou'st come home so early. Didn't thou dance? Dance. The girl laughed, a hard shrill laugh, as though one should strike a lute with a hammer till the strings ring back all jarred and jangled out of tune. What have I to do with dancing? Something's happened to thee, 
Child, tell me perhaps I can help thee. None can help me, said Wally, and shut down the lid of the chest as if she would bury in it all that was oppressing her. It was as though she were closing down the coffin lid over all her youthful hopes. Go now, she said imperiously, as she had never spoken before, I shall rest a while. Jesus, Maria, shrieked Luckert, there lies thy rosary all broken. Where are the beads? Lost. Oh, Lord, Lord. What ill luck! Only the cross is left and the empty string to break thy rosary on thy confirmation day and tears on the cards besides. Our Father in heaven, what will come of it? Thus lamenting, half pushed out by Wally, the old woman left the room and Wally bolted the door after her. She threw herself on the bed and lay motionless, staring at the picture of the Holy Mother and at the crucifix which hung on the wall opposite. Should she pour out her sorrows to these? No! The Mother of God could bear her no goodwill, otherwise she would not have let just her confirmation day above all others be so spoiled for her. Besides, she could not know what love sorrows were for she had known suffering only through her son and that was something quite different from what Wally felt. And the Lord Jesus Christ, he certainly did not trouble himself about love stories. No one might dare to approach him with such matters as these. All that he desired was that one should be always striving after the kingdom of heaven. Ah! And all her young, wildly beating heart was longing and yearning with every throb for the beloved, the best beloved one down here on earth. The kingdom of heaven was so far away and so strange. How could she strive after it in this moment when, for the first time, all powerful nature was imperiously claiming in her its right? With bitter defiance, she gazed at the images of the mother and son, whose pity was for quite other griefs than hers who demanded of her only what was impossible. She vouchsafed to them no further word. She was angry with them as a child is angry with its parents when they unjustly deny it some pleasure. Long she lay thus, her eyes fixed reproachfully on the holy images, but soon she saw before her only the dear and beautiful face of Joseph and involuntarily she grasped her shoulder with her hand where his hand had lain as though to keep firm hold of his momentary touch. And then she saw his mother again of whom she had been so jealous and she lay once more in Joseph's arms and he caressed her so fondly and then Wally pushed the mother away and lay herself instead on Joseph's heart and he held her clasped there and she looked down into the depths of his black flaming eyes and she tried to imagine what he would say, but she could think of nothing but, Thou dear little one, as he had said, Thou dear little mother. And what could be sweeter or dearer than that? Ah! What could the kingdom of heaven, in which those two up yonder wanted to have her, what could it be in comparison with the blessedness that she felt in only thinking of Joseph and how much greater must the reality be? There was a tap at her window, and she started up as if from a dream.
It was the young vulture which she had taken two years before from the nest and which was as faithfully attached to her as a dog. She could leave him quite free, he never hurt anyone and flew after her with his clipped wings as best he could. She opened the little window, he slipped in and looked trustingly at her with his yellow eyes. She scratched his neck gently and played with his strong wings, now spreading them out, now folding them together again. A cool air blew in through the open window. The sun had already sunk low behind the mountains, the narrow casement framed the peaceful picture of the mountain tops veiled in blue mist. In herself too all grew more peaceful, the evening air revived her spirit. She took the bird on her shoulder. Come, Hans, she said, we are doing nothing as though there were no work in the world. The faithful bird had brought her wonderful comfort. She had taken it for her own from the steep cliff where no one else would venture. She had fought its mother for life or death. She had tamed it and it belonged wholly to her. And he will also one day be mine, said an inward voice as she clasped the bird to her bosom. Chapter 2 Unbending This was the short story of love and sorrow, whose pain even now awoke again in the young heart as she looked down into the valley, thinking to see Joseph who so often passed along it and never found the way up to her. She wiped her forehead, for the sun was beginning to burn, and she had already mowed the whole meadowland from the house up to the Sonnenplatz, so the point on which she stood was called, because rising high above all around, it ever caught the earliest rays of the morning sun. From it the village took its name. Wally, Wally, someone now called from behind her, come to thy father, he's something to say to thee, and old Luckard came towards her from the house. Her father had sent for her? What could he want? Never since their adventure in Soldan had he spoken with her accepting of what concerned the day's work. Wavering between fear and reluctance, she rose and followed the old woman. What does he want? she asked. Great news, said Luckard. Look there. Wally looked and saw her father standing before the house and with him a young peasant of the place named Vincent's with a big nosegay in his buttonhole. He was a dark, robust fellow whom Wally had known from her childhood as a reserved and stubborn man. He had never bestowed a kindly word on anyone but Wally, to whom from her school days upwards he had shown a special goodwill. A few months previously both his parents had died within a short time of each other, now he was independent and next to Strominger the richest peasant in the countryside. The blood stood still in Wally's veins, for she already knew what was coming. Vincent wants to marry thee, said her father, I've said yes, and next month we'll have the wedding. Having thus spoken he turned on his heel and went into the house as if there were nothing more to be said. Wally stood silent for a moment as though thunderstruck, she must collect herself, she must consider what was to be done. 
Vincent's meanwhile confidently stepped up to her with the intention of putting his arm around her waist. But she sprang back with a cry of terror and now she knew well enough what it was she had to do. Vincent's, she said, trembling with misery, I beg of thee to go home. I can never be thy wife, never. Thou wouldn't have my father force me to it. I tell thee once for all I cannot love thee. A look brief as lightning flashed across Vincent's face, he bit his lips and his black eyes were fixed with passionate eagerness on Wally. So thou doesn't love me? But I love thee and I'll lay my life on it that I'll have thee too. I've got thy father's consent and I'll never give it back and I've a notion they'll come to change thy mind yet if thy father wills it. Vincent's, said Wally, if thou'd been wise thou'd not have spoken like that, for thou'd have known I'll never have thee now. What I will not do, none can force me to do that thou may know once for all. And now go home, Vincent's, we've nothing more to say to each other, and she turned short away from him and went into the house. Oh! thou. Vincent's called out after her in angry pain, clenching his fist. Then he checked himself. Well, he murmured between his teeth, I can wait and I will wait. Wally went straight to her father. He was sitting all bent together over his accounts and turned round slowly as she entered. What is it? he said. The sun shone through the low window and threw its full beams on Wally so that she stood as though wrapped in glory before her father. Even he was amazed at the beauty of his child as she stood before him at that moment. Father, she began quietly, I only wanted to tell you that I will not marry Vincent's. Indeed, cried Strominger, starting up. Is that it? Thou won't marry him? No, father, I don't like him. Indeed. And did I ask thee if thou liked him? No, I tell it you plainly, unasked. And I tell thee too unasked that in four weeks thou marry Vincent's whether thou likes him or not. I've given him my word and Strominger never takes his word back. Now get thee gone. No, father, said the girl, things can't be settled in that way. I'm no head of cattle to let myself be sold or promised as the master pleases. It seems to me I also have a word to say when it has to do with my marriage. No, that thou hasn't, for a child belongs to her father as much as a calf or a heifer and must do what its father orders. Who says that, father? Who says so? It's said in the Bible and an ominous flush rose on Strominger's face. It says in the Bible that we are to honor and love our parents, but not that we are to marry a man when it goes against us merely because our father orders it. See, father, if it could do you any good for me to marry Vincent's, if it could save you from death or from misery, I'd do it willingly, and even if I were to break my heart over it. 
but you're a rich man that need ask nothing of anyone. It must be all one to you whom I marry, and you give me to Vincent's out of pure spite, that I may not marry Joseph, whom I love, and who would certainly have loved me if he could have got to know me, and it's cruel of you, father, and it says nowhere in the Bible that a child should put up with that. Thou thou pert thing, I'll send thee to the priest, he'll teach thee what the Bible says. It will be no good, father, and if you sent me to ten priests, and if they all ten told me that I must obey you in this, I yet wouldn't do it. And I tell thee thou shalt do it so sure as my name is Strominger. Thou shalt do it, or I'll drive thee out of house and home and disinherit thee. That you can do, father, I'm strong enough to earn my own bread. Yes, father, give everything to Vincent's only not me. Foolish nonsense, said Strominger perplexed. Shall people say of me that Strominger cannot even master his own child? Thou shalt marry Vincent's, if I have to thrash thee into church, thou shalt. And even if you thrashed me into church, I'd still say no, at the altar. You may strike me dead, but you cannot thrash that yes out of me, and even if you could, sooner would I fling myself down from the cliff than I'd go home with a man I'd no love for. Now listen, cried Strominger, his broad forehead was cleft as it were, with a swelling blue vein that ran across it, his whole face was suffused, his eyes bloodshot. Now listen, thou'd better not drive me mad. Thou's already had enough of my cudgel, now give in, or between us things will come to a bad end. Things came to a bad end between us a year ago, father. For when you beat me so that time on my confirmation day, then I felt all was at an end between us. And see, father, since then it's been all one to me whether you are bad to me or good, whether you treat me well or strike me dead it's all one to me. I have no heart left for you. You're no dearer to me than the Similon Dash or Vernag Dash or Mersel Glacier. A stifled cry of rage broke from Strominger. Half stupefied, he had listened to the girl's words, but now, incapable of speech, he sprang upon her, seized her by the waist, swung her from the ground high over his head, and shook her till his own breath failed, then flinging her to the ground he set his heavy heel studded with nails upon her breast. Unsay what thou hast said, he gasped, or I'll crush thee like a worm. Do it, said the girl, her eyes fixed steadily on her father. She breathed hard, for her father's foot weighed on her like lead, but she did not stir, not so much as an eyelash trembled. Strominger's power was broken. He had threatened what he could not perform, for at the thought of crushing the fair and innocent breast of his child his anger faded, he grew suddenly calm. He was conquered. Almost staggering, he drew back his foot. Nay, I'll not end my days in a prison, he said gloomily, and sank exhausted into his chair. While he got up, she was pale as death, her eyes were tearless, lusterless, like a stone. She waited passively for what might come next. 
Strominger sat for a minute in bitter reflection, then he spoke in hoarse tones. I cannot kill thee, but since Simulon and Merzel are dear to thee as thy father, by Simulon and Merzel thou may remain for the future, thou may belong to them. Thou shall never more stretch thy feet under my board. Thou shall go and mind the cattle up on the hotchjock till thou's found out it's better to be in Vincent's warm home than in the snowdrift of the glacier. Tie up thy bundle, for I'll see no more of thee. Go up early tomorrow, I'll let the Schnalser people know, and send the cattle after thee next week by the boy. Take bread and cheese enough to last till the beasts come, Mayer will guide thee up there. Now take thyself off. These are my last words, and by these I'll stand. It is well, father, said Wally softly, she bowed her head and quitted her father's room. Chapter 3 Outcast Up on the Hotchjock It was a fearful sentence. For in the inhospitable regions of the Hotchjock there is none of the joyous life of the lower pastures where the sweet aromatic air resounds with the tinkle of bells, with the calls of the herdsmen and mountain girls here are eternal winter and the stillness of death. Sadly and gently, as a mother kisses the pale forehead of her dead child, so the sun kisses these cold glaciers. Scanty meadows, the last clinging vestiges of organic life penetrate, as though lost, the wintry desert, till the last shoot perishes, the last drop of rising sap is frozen, it is the slow extinction of nature. But the frugal peasant utilizes even these ungenerous remains, he sends his flocks up to graze on what they may find there, and the strange sheep tempted to reach after a plant which has wandered hither from a milder region, not unfrequently falls into some crevice in the ice. Here it was that the child of the proud chief peasant, whose possessions extended for miles in every direction and reached up even to the clouds, must spend her bloom in everlasting winter. While on the lower earth May breezes were blowing, the rising sap opening every bud, the birds building their nests, and all things stirring in joyous unison, she must take the herdsman's staff and quit the spring meadows for the desert of the glaciers above, and only when autumn winds should be sighing in winter preparing to descend into the valley, might she also return thither, as though she had been sold to winter, life, and limb. No one of the peasants of the neighborhood would send his shepherds up there, but they let out the meadows to the Schnalser people who lay nearer to the ridge on the farther side, and they sent a few half-wild, weather-beaten fellows who clothed themselves in skins and lived miles asunder in stone cabins like hermits, and now Strominger, who hitherto had always leased his pastures, condemned his own child to lead the life of a Schnalser herdsman. But from Wally's lips came no complaint, she prepared herself in silence for her mountain journey. Early in the morning, long before sunrise, whilst her father, the men, and the maids were still sleeping, Wally set out from her father's house for the mountain. Only old Luckard, who had known it all beforehand from the cards and who had passed the night with Wally helping her make up her bundle, stuck a sprig of rue in her hat as a farewell token and went part of the way with her. 
the old woman wept as if escorting the dead to the grave. Clettenmere came behind with the pack. He was a faithful old servant, the only one that had grown great in Strominger's service because he was deaf and did not hear when his master stormed and swore. This was the guide her father had selected for Wally. Luckard went with her till the road began a steep ascent. Then she took leave of them and turned back, for she had to be home in time to prepare the first meal. Wally climbed the hill and looked down upon the road along which the old woman went crying in her apron and even her heart almost failed her. Luckard had always been good to her, though she was old and feeble, at least she had loved Wally. Presently, the old woman turned once more and pointed above her head. Wally's eyes followed the direction of her finger and behold, something floated towards the mountain heights clumsily, uncertainly through the air like a paper kite when the wind fails, now flying on a little way, then falling and with difficulty rising again. The vulture with his clipped wings had painfully fluttered the whole way after her but now his strength seemed to give way and he could only scramble along, flapping his pinions. Hansel, oh, my Hansel, how could I forget thee, cried Wally, springing like a chamois from rock to rock the shortest way back to fetch the faithful bird. Luckard stood still till Wally once more reached the narrow path, then greeted her again as if after a long separation. At last Hansel too was reached and Wally took him in her arms and pressed him to her heart like a child. Since last evening, the bird was so identified in all her thoughts with Joseph that it seemed almost as if it were a dumb medium between him and her or as though Joseph had changed into the vulture and in holding Hansel she clasped him in her arms. As an ardent faith creates its own visible symbols to bring near to itself the unattainable and the remote and to seize the intangible and as to faith a wooden cross and a painted image become miraculous so ardent love creates its own symbols to which it clings when the beloved one is far off, unattainable. Even so Wally derived now a wonderful consolation from her bird. Come, Hansel, she said tenderly, thou shalt go with me up to the ferner, we two will never be parted more. But, child, said old Luckard, Thou never can take the vulture up there, he'd die of hunger. Thou's no meat for him up there, and creatures like him eat nothing else. That is true, said Wally sadly, but I can't part from the bird. I must have something with me up there in the wilderness. And I can't leave him alone at home either, who'd look after him and take care of him when I'm away. Oh! For that thou may be easy, cried Luckard, I'll look after him well enough. I, but he'll not follow thee, said Wally, thou art he not used to his ways. Nay, let me have him, said Luckard. All this long time I've taken care of thee, surely I can take care of the bird. Give him me here, I'll carry him home, and she pulled the vulture out of Wally's arms. But it would not do, the noble bird set himself on the defensive and pecked so angrily at Luckard that she was frightened and let go. 
It was of no use for her to think of taking him home with her. Thou sees, cried Wally joyfully, he'll not leave me, I must keep him, come what will. I was once called the Vulture Maiden and the Vulture Maiden I must still remain. Oh, my Hansel, as long as we two are together, we shall want for nothing. I'll tell thee what, Luckard, I'll let his wings grow now, he'll not fly away from me, and then he can find food for himself up yonder. God bless thee, then, take him with thee. I'll send thee up some fresh and salt meat by the boy, thou can give him that till he can fly abroad. And so it was settled. Wally took the vulture under her arm like a hen and parted from Luckard who began to cry afresh. But Wally, without further delay, went up the mountain again after the guide who had meanwhile gone on ahead. In two hours they reached Vent, the last village, before entering the realms of ice. Wally mounted the hill above Vent, here began the path to the Hotchjock. Once more she paused and leaning on her alpenstock looked down on the quiet, still half-dreaming village and over the lake beyond and the last houses of the Oats Valley to the farms of Rofenwich lying almost at the foot of the ever-advancing, ever-receding Hotchvernagferners seemed defiantly to say to it, crush us. Even as Wally yesterday had defied her father. And like her father the Hochvernagd each time withdrew its mighty foot as though it could not bear to destroy the home of its brave mountain children, the Klotza of Rofin. While she thus stood, looking down on the utmost dwellings of men before mounting to the desert beyond the clouds, there rose from the church tower of Vent the sound of the bell for matins. Out of the door of the little parsonage, where the buds of the mountain pink tapped the window in the morning breeze, came the priest and went with folded hands to his pious duty in the church. Here and there the wooden houses opened their sleepy eyes and one figure after another coming out stretched itself and took its way slowly to the church. Carefully and losing no tone by the way, the wind-winged angels bore the pious sound up the slope and it rang in Wally's ear like the voice of a child that prays. And as a child arouses its mother by its sweet lisping, so the peal from vent seemed to have aroused the sun. He opened his mighty eye, and the rays of his first glance shot over the mountains, an immeasurable shaft of flame that crowned the eastern heights. The dim gray of the twilight sky suddenly lighted up to a transparent blue, each moment the beam grew broader in the heavens, and at length mounted in full splendor over the cloud-veiled peaks and turned his flaming countenance lovingly to earth. The mountains threw off their misty shrouds and bathed their naked forms in streams of light. Deep down in the ravines the clouds heaved and rolled as though they had sunk down thither from the pure heaven above. In the air was a rushing as of wild hymns of joy and the earth wept tears of blissful waking like a bride on her wedding morning and like the tears on the eyelashes of the bride the dewdrops quivered joyfully on each blade and spray. Joy lay everywhere, above on the mountain tops where the dazzling rays were mirrored in the far-seeing eyes of the chamois, below in the valley where the lark soared, warbling, from amongst the springing corn. 
Wally gazed intoxicated on the awakening world with eyes that could hardly take in the whole shining picture in its pure morning beauty. The vulture on her shoulder lifted its wings as though longingly to greet the sun. Below in vent, meanwhile, all was awakening to new life. From where Wally stood, she could see everything distinctly in the clear morning light. The lads kissed the maidens by the well. White smoke curled upwards from the houses, vanishing without a trace in the serene spring air as a sorrowful thought loses itself in a happy soul. On the green in front of the church, the men assembled in white Sunday shirt sleeves, their silver-mounted pipes in their mouths. It was Whit Monday when all make holiday and rejoice. Oh, holy Whitsuntide. Just such a day must it have been when the Spirit of the Lord fell on the disciples and enlightened them with divine illumination that they might go forth into all the world and preach the gospel of love, preach it to open hearts, touched by the happy springfer, in the springtide of the year appeared also the springtide of men the religion of love. For her only who stood up there on the mountain was there no Whitsuntide, no revelation of love. In her no persuasive voice had quickened the gospel into life. A meaningless letter it had remained to her, a buried seed which needed the vivifying ray to make it spring up in her heart. No dew of peace fell on her from the deep blue heavens. The bird prey on her shoulder was to her the only messenger of love. At last, Wally broke away from her dreamy contemplation. She gave one farewell glance to the merry, noisy villagers, then she turned to climb the silent snowfields of the Hotchduck in banishment. <laughs>